all of you. I'm here to continue together with you the analysis of actions, words, teachings of Jesus as reported in the Gospel of Luke. It's uh, been an interesting history about these things because I did do some commentaries on Jesus' work in the early years, 2006-07 here in Agama, and uh, people noticed that they gave them a lot of aspiration and a lot of motivation and they were very strong and uh, for many, many years we didn't come back to some of those understandings and last year I had restarted to do this and there have been six satsangs did, done in 2018 and last week has been number seven so we are right in the middle of commenting different things those of you who come for the first time to such a satsang you are like dropping in and you are in the middle of it um, I just call your attention on the motivations that in traditional spiritual yoga, in authentic yoga, Jesus has a place of pride. Great yogis like Ramakrishna, Yogananda, Shivananda, Aurobindo and others have praised Jesus as being an avatar and therefore his teachings as being divine. And uh, what we do here is that I'm not some Christian preacher who makes a some ravings about what Jesus did or said. I am a yoga teacher who is trying to show you where these things fit with yoga, where they don't fit with yoga, what is the metaphysical meaning of these things, what is the spiritual, deeper understanding of these things. What usually results from these commentaries is uh, a lot of aspiration, a very little amount of compromise. It shows you a spiritual attitude which is not at all compromising, which is very black and white, very motivating, very motivated also. And uh, therefore, somehow, it is the experience of this school that every time when you mix yoga with some of the teachings of Jesus, the mixture is dynamite. It's very, very powerful. Some of this Christ-like spirit mixed up with the, the headstand and with the Udiana Bandas, it actually gives a dynamite-like effect. It amplifies things a lot because it puts some things into perspective. So this is how we look upon the things of Jesus. If there is any you know, like Jesus here acts on Manipura, or Jesus here acts on Anahata, or on Sahasrara. No? It's a huge difference. You will never find such connections in somebody who is outside of Tantric Yoga. Only people who are inside the environment of Tantric Yoga can evaluate such things, because they have the powerful instrument of chakras, energies, other and other elements which are there. So, in a certain way, these commentaries are quite unique. They are giving a quite unique perspective in looking and seeing these things. It doesn't mean it makes you a Christian. We have here in this hall tonight 
people who are Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, and people who are agnostic or atheistic, maybe as well, rationalists and so on. This is not, it's about trying to understand a very vast spiritual phenomenon. And uh, one thing I promised for here, we've seen last week, the people who were present last week, they're like blown out of their water because the implications of what Jesus did and said were so powerful for 21st century yogis that people were astonished of the consequences, no? So we were analyzing some of the actions where Jesus performed some minor and major miracles and you know, we, we saw the scene where Peter seeing one of his miracles, the one with catching fish, catching a lot of fish, which again is a very strange thing, like Jesus contributed to the killing of fishes, so he was not an ecologist or he was not saving the fishes, like Greenpeace or something like that. Then uh, Peter got completely afraid and he said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. What a contradictory reaction, I commented about it a bit last week, but I just wanted to come back to that because I felt something had not been said. If any one of you would have the awareness, like I'm an imperfect, let's not use the word sinful, because people today hate this uh, word sin and sinful. Even if you would go and say, I'm an imperfect human being, I still have a lot of selfishness, I'm maybe not very generous, maybe not a very detached person, I am this, I am that, no? and if you'd say I'm an imperfect human being, and I'm kind of ashamed to be in the presence of Jesus. As Jesus at some point himself says, not far from here, he says, I came here for the sick, not for the healthy. And therefore, the normal reaction would be, I am a sinful man, I am an imperfect person, oh Jesus, please stay with me some more. Precisely because I am imperfect and because I am sinful. I need you more than the average person. But no, the person who is in such a state of mind is also hating themselves, deprecating themselves. It has low self-esteem, as it is called today in psychology. And if I say, uh, I'm a sinful person, then I say, God, go away from me. I'm not worthy that you can come close to me. But I am the one who needs the doctor the most. So why do the people who need the doctor the most, why are they afraid of the doctor? Why are they saying, oh, I'm not worthy, go away. Why go away? Come closer. I desperately need you precisely because I'm so imperfect. This feeling that I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve the great things. Who is doing this? We are doing it to ourselves. This is how karma manifests. Karma manifests that it puts stupid ideas in our own mind. And then we shoot ourselves in the foot and we say, I don't think Jesus will ever come to me because 10 years ago I was doing some horrible things and I don't deserve it. It's on the contrary. Because 10 years ago I was doing horrible things, I need Jesus more than the average person 
and I should ask him to come in my life to compensate for that. Not to come up with low self-esteem and to say no and all that. So, we've seen a few healing actions of Jesus, and now I continue. I'm somewhere in the middle of what would be called the, the chapter number 5, or something. From Luke, somewhere in the middle of it, the verse at number 17, and the story continues. He had just cleansed a person that was full of leprosy, a leper. And he even told to that leper, pretend you go to the temple and make some offerings and then claim that God has healed you. So people don't have to have this challenge. Oh, is Jesus really that holy? Is God with Jesus? Uh, maybe Jesus is doing the work of the devil and this is not a really a miracle, but a sort of a pseudo-miracle by which demonic forces just they heal one father, one leper, but then they want to gain a hundred souls because they heal the leper, so it's a sort of a gambit, like in the chess game. You sacrifice a pawn or something to get a bigger advantage somewhere else. No? So it's like, to avoid this, Jesus says, don't even go there. Just sacrifice a lamb to the temple and pre pre pretend that you have been healed because of the sacrifice in the temple. But of course, it didn't work. The truth surfaced and people were still talking about Jesus about too much. And the paragraph number 16 was, the, the verse at number 16, was ending with this thing that yet all the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses, which many people have pointed to, like the function of Jesus was not to heal lepers. Today, they will heal much more lepers than Jesus did in those times, because leprosy reacts to penicillin. So ever since the invention of penicillin, they almost eradicated leprosy on the face of this earth. So Jesus was not the healer of the lepers and of the blind. His purpose was to awaken humanity in a way. And all these healing and apparent miracles, they were just a way of collecting goodwill. They were just a way of attracting people's attention and saying, look, I know what I'm talking. If I can heal a leper, then maybe you should listen because I have information which you don't have. No. But the miracles in themselves don't prove that he is right. I may have some healing power or science, and then I'm preaching, I don't know, pedophilia. It doesn't mean that pedophilia is justified because I'm a great healer. Jesus is using a psychological trick with all these miracles and things because it's like the miracles make him right. That's what people think because people perform what is called transference. People transfer the value from the healing onto the value of Jesus as messenger. But if you practice a very strict logics, it doesn't apply. The fact that Jesus can heal lepers, it doesn't mean that he talks for God. Today, you can heal lepers with penicillin, and it doesn't mean you talk for God. A doctor who does that. And that's why, remember, that uh, here, things are very twisted, because people 
who are coming to be healed, but they also are coming to hear him. It was a very skillful way of gaining goodwill by performing great deeds. And uh, the chapter there was ending by saying, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That's very important. I promise I'll take it from here because of this. Generally, the people who go in spirituality, they are the kind of people who like to isolate and be alone. Today we say that some people say, I need my space. For example, people that have some activation of Vishuddha Chakra, they are very puritanic and they don't like, they get tired when they are with other people. There are people that are pure Zvadhisthana typologies. If they don't see anybody for half an hour, they start howling, like dogs in distress or something. No? They simply cannot tolerate loneliness. If they don't rub antlers with another member of the community, it's like, oh my God, oh my God. And there are people who cannot take it more than two, three hours to be with people. And then they run home and they say, oh God, finally I got home. Like home is the only place where I can be alone. I turn off my telephone. I do Not necessarily that these people do eight hours of yoga at home. That would be great. It's not always happening. Maybe they just flip through a magazine. Maybe they just contemplate and daydream. Maybe they go on Facebook or something because non-physical contact. But even there they get tired because there is too much talking and too much drama and too much this. So not, they can't take too much of that because that is Vadisana phenomenon. All these uh, social media networks, they are very much a Vadisana process. And uh, anyway, there are people who, for whom to be alone is like a punishment. And there are people for whom to be alone is like a reward. I have known once of a yogi who was put in prison in a country. And all his desire was to be put in solitary confinement. You know? He didn't want to be with the other collective of prisoners in the prison. But he said, if you leave me alone in a cell, I'll be the most happy person in this prison. You know? But it's a punishment. No, not for me. So here, the temperament differs. You can see that even Jesus, who came with a mission, and who was buoyant, and a public speaker, and he loved to interact with people because he had something to transmit, it says, Luke says that he heard about him because Luke never met Jesus personally. He wrote from, uh, he was a companion of the Apostle Paul, so he knew indirectly about Jesus. And he was told, and he mentioned it, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. If he prayed, if he repeated a mantra, if he did headstand, if he masturbated, if he just slept, we don't know what he did. People assume, because if it was lonely places, people didn't really know what Jesus was doing. Of course, people assume that he must have been praying because he was Jesus. And it's very probable that it was so. But the point is not what he was doing when he was alone. Maybe he was just looking at his fingers, just thinking, you know, daydreaming. And kind of, you know, like some people do some strange gestures. 
they can stay like this for 45 minutes, like being lost in their thoughts. Doesn't mean that, strictly speaking, that person was praying. But people, so especially people inclined to contemplative spirituality, people, this kind of people, they value their time. Even when they are involved in tantric relationships, they say we spend two, three hours together, then the other 21 hours we stay each one in the bungalow and we do our finger watching, you know? Simply because when I watch my fingers, it's like I recharge my batteries. Something in me feels very good when I do that. And I can give some time, but not all the time in the world. So, um, Jesus was that kind of person. You would say that these people are interiorized people. Again, in spirituality, most often people like Buddha, who stayed six years in the jungle or whatever, they were people who valued their loneliness. In the beginning, you have a value in the society and in the community. But the more you rise in the chakras, for example, when you reach to the level of the Shuddha chakra, it's a typical one, Shuddha chakra is one of the most typical ones, then you need your own space. You need time spent with yourself. Uh, there is a great proverb which I encountered somewhere, which says, if you get bored when you are alone, it means you've got nothing to tell to yourself. Like, indeed, the people who love their loneliness, they have a very intense inner life. They talk to themselves, not verbally, not physically, and they have a lot of things to debate, to think, to dream, to analyze, to dwell upon. Like the internal dialogue, you with your own heart, you with your own soul, is very rich. And such a person doesn't get bored. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Like this uh, crows or whatever, these vultures from the jungle book. Those of you who remember the Walt Disney jungle book, the old one. You know, there are three crows and they are getting bored because they don't have any corpse to it. And they say, what are we going to do? What are they do? And eventually they go crazy and they start singing a song. And all that. If you have seen that scene, I'm sure it's on YouTube and everywhere. No? It's like we're getting bored even when we are three of us. We're sitting, what should we do? Oh, let's do something wild. You can see on YouTube and other places that people do the most ridiculous things because they get bored. Like when you see some of the YouTube clips, you say, how bored can people get? No, like when people get bored, they start doing the most insane experiments and wild staging. And it's like, you know, if they would be in Somalia dying of hunger, they would be running around for a bean, just to catch a bean and eat it. You know, survival would be the... But if people are having everything and they have time on their hands and they are getting bored, they start either doing stupidities or they are start doing spiritual practice. In the case of Jesus, Obviously, he was not getting bored by being alone, and he was actually seeking it. It's important for you to learn to be alone from time to time. You can choose one day per week or something to just be with yourself. And if you get terribly bored, of course, you can always read a spiritual book or something, but if you get bored, it means you are not looking into yourself. 
you are not talking to yourself, because there is a richness in yourself, and there are so many questions and doubts and issues that we have, that we can spend a lifetime just being with ourselves. Why? Because God is inside ourselves. The universe is inside ourselves. Our subconscious mind is connected to the infinite, to the endless. So, of course we have what to do when we are by ourselves. Not to mention that yoga gives you exercises of concentration, meditation, contemplation, and other such technologies which definitely make things very, very interesting to explore. And we continue with something which happened with Jesus. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. So it's mentioned that among the people that were listening to Jesus, there were people who were a little bit on the edge. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were a sort of the priests of the day, and they were very provoked by this man called Jesus, because on one hand he was spiritual, wise, clear, insightful, and they felt uplifted in his presence. On the other hand, he was not very kosher, according to the regulations of the day, and they always felt like maybe the establishment will punish him, will turn against him, which the establishment actually did at some point. But these people were, so these people were on the fence, these people were on the edge. They were with one foot with Jesus and with one foot still very, uh, I don't know, you know, this guy is uh, strange and whatever. And so they were there as well. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. This is a strange statement because it tells us two things. First of all, Jesus always acted like a sailboat. He had wind in his sails, he was sailing. He had no wind in his sails, he was not sailing. In the end, they said, oh, if you are so big, why don't you make a one last little minute miracle to convince us that you are something. And he did, I did, I spoke, now you're getting this, you're getting nothing. There's no more miracles and so on. Exactly when his judgment day came, and he would have needed a few miracles. Then the wind had stopped. This wind is the will of God, is the grace, the grace coming from the divine consciousness. And Jesus said several times, I did not come here to do my wish. I came here to do for you what my Father in heaven, which means God, sent me to do. Like he said, if I heal eight lepers, it's because God sent me to heal eight lepers. And if I heal nine, it's too much. It's not what was given to me. I was not sent for that. I was sent for eight. And therefore, he's always like, there has to be, and of course the people who do karma yoga, and the people who do blessings and prayer, if any one of you is into any of these directions of spirituality, such people know it very well, because it feels in a certain way. You can feel when the wind is in your sails, or not. One of my friends was very enthusiastic after one year and a half of yoga. He already had some 
properties, like he could feel the energy, he could pray, he could do, and then he goes on the street and sees one person falling down on the street, some heart attack or something. And the people are gathering around to try to help that person, and he says, I'm a yogi, I can go and at least give him some energy or something. And he goes and he touches that person, and suddenly he feels, he feels like scared. There is something dark. There is something which he doesn't understand. And basically for him, it's a no-go. I have the best intentions, but something very intuitive, something internal, tells me, don't poke your nose into this one. It's not for you. So, that's why I'm saying these things, because here the author says that, and the power of the Lord was present with him to heal the sick. Like, he was on the way. He was in the mood. The wind was blowing. Like, it tells us that maybe even Jesus was not quite equal all the time. Not because I would say that Jesus had a good day, and Jesus didn't have such a good day. Because for Jesus, it doesn't really exist. It doesn't really work like this, that he has good days and bad days. He can always pray or go close his eyes and go in Sahasrara, and then it will be a good day. If for a person like Jesus it would happen that the mood would be slightly... Jesus is not a person depending on emotion, saying, no, no, today I had a really annoying day, I don't want to heal lepers today. If a leper would come and say, Lord, you can cleanse me, then Jesus would say, the heck with the emotions of today. I am God, and I'm here to do God's work. And then he would, in a second, he would be in the mood. So it's not about bad days and good days. It's more the thing that somehow he could feel, and he probably spoke about it, because otherwise how would other people know about it? He could feel, he could say, it's strong. Like, after I did the satsang last week, I told to some of my teachers, the grace was very strong last night, because last week I could feel a lot this energy coming, and this clarity, and this impression, like the awakening which was given to people, it was very strong. I don't want to indulge in stagings like this, but some gurus are using this a lot. For example, the legendary controversial, notorious Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later called Osho Rajneesh, he was coming and doing some brilliant speeches in which there was also a spiritual transmission of energy. And he made quite an entrance. People had to be in the hall. Nobody was allowed to go in or out of the hall while Rajneesh was coming in. People were not allowed to use deodorant or soap or perfume because it would smell they were like a hundred way more strict than we are with you here. Here you are coming later, you are going earlier, you are doing your things. I've seen people buttoning their telephones and things like this. It's like uh, there, so they are using a very special staging. And Rajneesh did his things, talking in his special way, and then he namasted everybody and went out. And only then people were allowed and there were people who, in the moment when Rajneesh left, they could feel the difference because they had been in the light, they had been in some sort of clarity, and suddenly it was taken off. 
and there are people who lie down on the ground and start screaming and crying in the Rajneesh Yoga halls, in the lecture halls, simply because of this. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus was there, and whoever was in his presence was receiving some momentary clarity. How many women did not the Jews stone because that was their law, that the woman that is adulterous and caught in the act of adultery, she should be stoned to death. And then they brought one to him simply because they wanted to put him to shame because he was going to break the law of Moses. And Jesus, being a genius, a spiritual genius among others, being divine, of course he could see the flaw in what they were trying to do. And then he did something else. He just boosted everybody's sahasrara a little bit. And he said, he among you that has no sin, he should throw the first stone. Guess what? Nobody dared. Everybody dropped the stones and left home. They didn't dare because they were in a state where they realized, I'm a dirty person. I'm impure. How should I have the heart to throw a stone at this woman when I know that I myself am a shithead and I have done lots of shit in my life? But that normally people don't think. People don't have that modesty and that awareness. It was because Jesus turned it up a notch and suddenly everybody was in the light. Everybody was in some sort of internal light where they were very aware of themselves and the value of things and the resonance of things. So that's what I'm talking about. And here it is described that in this day in particular, of course this was practically every day, Jesus fell, he says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Like his mission was flowing. He was in the flow. He was feeling, you know, it's a good day. It's a day where the grace is coming abundantly right now. And you can see that with other spiritual masters who are not avatars, who are not divine incarnations, but just human beings, like Buddha never claimed that he was a divine being. Buddha claimed that he was a human being who lived 10,000 lifetimes, and in the previous life he was almost enlightened, and in the life number 10,000 he became fully enlightened. So he was a man reaching to the top. Jesus is a god coming from above the top. It's a different story. Jesus is not the same as Buddha. We say great masters like Jesus and Buddha, but it's not the same. And they themselves don't claim that they are the same. For example, the prophet Muhammad, he says he was dictated the Quran by the archangel Gabriel. Not by God himself, by archangel Gabriel. He was visited by an archangel. And he doesn't say that he's God. He says, I'm just a human being who God chose to make a prophet. So I'm a prophet of God. I'm a messenger. I myself receive a message from the archangel. And therefore, I am a chosen human being. But I'm not God. Far from that. That doesn't exist in Islam or in the teachings of the prophet Muhammad. And thus, he was feeling this power. And you can see with Buddha, you can see with others and others, whatever grand masters you want to take, that they were not always in 100% shape. They were not. Sometimes they were tired. Sometimes they said, come back tomorrow. 
Sometimes they used some philosophical parables trying to deflect the issue. If you will study very carefully, you will see that even great spirits were not 100% equal. They depended very much on this. For Jesus, we never see a time where Jesus said, come on, give me a break, it's enough, it's enough, and so on. So it didn't happen. And yet, although it didn't happen and Jesus could summon up his grace, his connection with grace, nevertheless, here the author tells us specifically, which probably only Jesus could have remarked, and he said, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Well, the power of the Lord was always with him. For three years and a half, he went around and just enlightened people and healed people and raised the dead and walked on water and did whatever. It's like the power seemed to have been day and night with him. But in this particular situation, we are still mentioned specifically about it, which tells us very much about the fact that there is a mysterious universal consciousness that acts according to laws and rules which are not fully understood by human beings. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Like, of course, you know, uh, people, if they heard that Jesus healed a leper, then they started thinking like, you know, I would say idiots. Maybe they are not idiots, but definitely it's not the right thing. Because people started saying, let's see if he can do a blind man also. Uh, can he do paralysis also? Or what about dead people? Can he do that? No, like people always up to the ante. People raised the bar and they were just curious because people saw him healing a leper. And then you are not the only skeptical people in this world. If you would see me healing some leper, you would say, what, this guy really leper? Or Swami Vivekananda had a clever David Copperfield PR person to arrange to stage some fake miracle to just convince us because Agama is a bit in trouble and he does, you know, and then he is kind of doing some PR ploys to just attract attention. It doesn't make people who say, yeah, but even David Copperfield flies in front of hundreds of people every night in Las Vegas or wherever he is, you know, and everything can be fake one way or another, you know. So what if it's not true? Theoretically, when Jesus was telling them, look, if you just believe in God, you pray to God and the leper is healed. And then people after five minutes, they say, give us another one. We still don't believe it. And believe me, even if you do 20 of those, every one of them will increase the faith of people with 1%. Because first they will go 50%, and they will say, Hallelujah, Messiah, the Messiah has come. The Messiah is with us, God, this is God, and so on. And then they will say, you know, maybe yesterday I was just fooled by something. There are also people who don't like this Jesus guy. And then, um, maybe, you know, maybe he's just very smart. Maybe he's some sort of Sai Baba materializing sugar candies. Or, you don't know. You don't know. That's why the problem is that Jesus is constantly trying to convince people that they can have faith. And he uses healings and miracles to boost people's faith. And people's faith is very difficult to increase because 
if you have the demon of skepticism, if you are a cynic inside your mind, that will not disappear because Jesus does five miracles. Very seldom. Very seldom. You must be right for it. You must be a closet Buddha. And then when you see something, it suddenly you click and you go like, yeah, I didn't need more. Like Laleshwari, the tantric poet, and she said, my guru told me that I am Shiva and I believe him. It was as simple as that for Laleshwari. I have told to a thousand people that they are Shiva and nobody believes me. Not because the message is different. Simply because only one person in a million clicks like Laleshwari. Because she was right. She was ready for going there. For the other people it comes slowly, slowly. And even Jesus coming to, especially the Jewish spirit, it has this Manipura, Ajna thing, and it's very sarcastic, very cynical, very, there is a lot of that in the Israeli soul, in the Jewish soul, and Jesus is coming and telling them, be you surrender, God does everything, it's like, nah, 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 you have to be strong, you have to be on your toes, what if there is something tricky in this, difficult to accept things from certain states of consciousness, and that's why, People, you know, people were going, like if people heard there is a guy who heals lepers and the blind, they said, man, don't you know somebody who is paralyzed? Don't you know somebody who is dead? Like, let's bring him another one. Ultimately, it's their soul crying for faith. Because they know that every time when they see one more miracle, and it's like, oh, come on, he couldn't have cheated on that one, because we know this paralyzed guy, he really was paralyzed, you know? Then it's a desperate cry of your soul, like Jesus, do another one so that I can believe more. It increases my faith. People's problem is I cannot believe. I cannot make myself believe. And then Jesus is such a challenge, you know, because theoretically he could make you believe everything. He could make you believe the divinity. He constantly speaks about it, but still there is this annoying demon of doubt inside one's heart, inside one's soul. But that's why they keep, don't think that the Jews who brought this paralytic man, they were compassionate. They were Buddhas of compassion and said, my God, for three years we have a divine healer here descended on earth in Israel. Let's just heal everybody. Every Israeli should get healed because now is the momentum. You know, now we caught God by the ankle of his foot. You know, now we have the opportunity. No, they were not doing it because of the compassion for all the other members of their community. Oh, by the way, in the next village, there is a guy who lost one leg. Maybe Jesus can make his leg grow back. You know, they didn't care about the person. They cared about seeing one more miracle so that something can happen in their heart because there was a war in their heart. Should I believe or should I not believe? Is this true or is this not true? Same is happening for you when you do yoga. After six weeks, everybody understands that yoga is amazing. And then people say, isn't there a trick? We've heard so many dirty things about Angama and this. I heard that they hypnotize us or something. And it's like, uh, what if it's not true? 
This is one step forward, one step backward. Always the human being needs to be inspired and this inspiration is very difficult and sometimes it almost does not work. Try to think that there were people who saw Jesus or were part of miracles, like Jesus fed thousands of people with bread and fish, and then some of those people, they participated in his crucifixion. There is a wild story, it's one of the oral stories of the Christian church, it's like it's not verified uh, on paper, which if you remember, those of you who read the story, when Jesus got to be crucified, before that they beat him up and they mocked him. And people hit him with a fist and they put a crown of thorns and they spit on him and they did all sorts of things, like they mocked him. He was beaten, mocked, and then crucified. And in that mocking, there is somebody who hits him from behind, you know, like hooligans do. Six people surround one, and then one of them hits you from behind. You don't even see it coming. You know, a fist in the face or something. And then everybody is jeering and saying, Who hit you? Because you are a prophet. You are supposed to be clairvoyant, right? You know. Can you say out of us six, Who hit you in the face? It is said by the history of the church that that man who hit him and was jeering, was part of that team, was one of the blind people that Jesus had healed a week before. So Jesus healed the blind, and one week later the blind man was in the team of idiots that were beating and mocking Jesus as part of his... No? And this is how people are. Even if Jesus heals your blindness, you don't believe it. And then maybe you believe, yeah, he healed my blindness, but it was a dirty trick. Must have been the power of the devil to just steal my soul. He gives me a trinket like heals my eyes and then he wants me to believe in him, the bastard, because he's sent by the devil. But I will not believe in him, although he healed my sight, because that healing came from the devil. What can you say to this? It's like people can get as sick and crazy in their mind as you would believe. And on the other hand, there was another guy who got healed and uh, the priest came and said, you were not healed properly. This man used the power of the devil. And the blind man, he said, I don't know if he heals with God or with the devil. I can just tell you this. Half an hour ago I was blind, and now I'm not. That's what matters to me. Like at least this guy had the common sense. You know, don't tell me wild theological stories. When you tell me somebody healed my life, and then I say that that person was a bad person. You have to be completely uprooted from the common sense to say such a stupid thing. And therefore, so they brought him a paralytic. You know, like people were in the mood, like, give us another one. Let's see if we can find anybody sick in this village or the next village is because we've got a great show. We've got a circus in the village. Jesus, the healer, does circus show for us, healing one after another, one after another, one after another. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, so much of the crowd they couldn't even get close to Jesus, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, through the holes there, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, because there was a challenge, right? let's see if we can do this one. 
But really, they wouldn't have bothered if they wouldn't have hoped it can happen, nevertheless. So Jesus did not see the fact that they might have been a bit cynical. He did not look at the empty half of the glass. Jesus applied positive thinking. He simply said, it's true that you may be wanting to challenge me, because your faith is suffering, but at the same time, I know that you have some faith, because you suspect that this man is going to get wealth. So Jesus took the full half of the glass, the positive part, and he said to the paralyzed man, but of course Jesus is much more complex psychologically than this. He is a divine being, you know, and he does it, but because there is this cynical skepticism, he does it in a way where he bursts the boil. There is a boil, there is a big red boil there, you know, there is a pimple, and that pimple is full of pus, and he wants to snap that pimple. He wants to burst it because there is an elephant in the room. And nobody talks about the elephant in the room that maybe Jesus is a cheater, which of course the Jewish priests accused him abundantly of being at, at that point. And therefore he does it by raising the stakes. Like he could just simply go, oh you bought me a person, put the hands on this and say through the power of God may you be healed or whatever. The power was on him, and he knew he had the wind in his sails. But he does it in a way which is raising the hair of everybody. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Like, wasn't he supposed to heal the paralysis? But he goes much further than that. He says, your sins, all of them, even the sin that you whatever did, what, is forgiven which is a much bigger thing than people asked him to do. People said, stop his paralysis and send him home. But Jesus says, your sins, which means all your sins, are forgiven. Whoa! Like he goes to another level precisely because there is the, an elephant in the room. People are challenging him, although a little bit, they are also believing in him, and they honestly hope that something wonderful will come. And when he pushes the envelope, then people snap and show their real face. Jesus is very good at this, at dealing with the crowd in this way. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so the people who thought they knew a bit of theology, the learned people, the normal, the village people, would have said, whoa. No, they brought this paralyzed man and Jesus told him, your sins are forgiven. My goodness, my hair is standing on an end, you know. I got goosebumps. It was so amazing. But the intellectuals, the educated people, it was too much for them. Their skepticism was again pushed to the limit. Like Jesus likes to provoke very much. And he goes and they start beginning to themselves, who is this fellow? who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? These people had not witnessed anything like this, because there were prophets before, and the prophets could not forgive sins. Moses did not forgive sins. Moses said, I can pray to God so that he forgives your sins. 
But here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, I am God, and therefore your sins are forgiven. But that they could not, I mean, it was too much leap in understanding for them to say that. They said, okay, you are a prophet, you are a great teacher, and you can heal lepers and so on. And now you are coming with something which is very hard to swallow. You say, your sins are forgiven. Because basically, Jesus tells to this man, all your negative karma is gone. Nobody was dealing with karma before Jesus in this way. Even in India and other places, they were not doing it. Karma is karma. Your karma is your karma. My karma is my karma. And everybody has to deal with it. And Jesus now comes and he says, it's nothing. Your sins are forgiven. Oh. Whoa. No, no, I'm not saying uh, I will ask God to forgive. He says, they your sins are forgiven. Like, I decided. There were a few prophets who did some things. There is the famous prophet Elijah. Elijah, if you read the book of Elijah in the Bible, he does one thing which is scary. Because my story is a bit hazy right now, but you can read it and go into full details. As far as I remember the story, it's like this. One local Jewish king or something was very manipulistic and very uh, not religious. And he despised all these prophets, considering them garbage and so on. And Elijah was a pain in the neck. He was annoying and he did. And then he treated Elijah and all the religious matters a bit harsh, a bit like, yeah, yeah, you and your religious people, you can all go and drown yourselves. I'm a king, I have responsibilities, da 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 And then Elijah does one crazy thing. He goes and tells to the king, now, because you treated me and our religion badly, not from God, but from me, with power, not from God, but from me, in your kingdom there will be no rain for three years. But of course you realize, in Palestine, if you don't get rain for three years, you can as well commit suicide or you have to pack and emigrate to another country. Because there it's already desert, or almost desert. There is a rain now and then, which keeps the nature alive. But if you stop that rain also, you're dead. And the whole community goes dead. So Elijah says it because I, I did ask God for this one, because I have the power to control the weather. And because of this, I don't even need to ask God, because I know I'm good. And if I don't do the right thing, God will punish me when I die. But I'm sure I'm doing the right thing, so I don't hesitate. And then Elijah says, now, not from God, I'm not asking God to do this, but with power from me, I would stop the rain for three years. Guess what happened? People stood, they overthrew their king, and they apologized to Elijah, and they said, we're going to be religious. And then Elijah restarted the rain. So, it has been seen before that some people, not always with the power from God, but with some personal power, what the yogis from India call Siddhis, paranormal abilities, that some people can do some things even without asking for permission. They can simply do it and that's it. No? So people have seen that, but now Jesus is pushing the envelope because he's not stopping the rain. Jesus says your sins are forgiven, which is a much bigger thing 
to interact with the weather, it is a relatively low force of nature. But to interact with karma, it's a very high level. Karma is a very, very subtle energy, and Jesus deals with it like it doesn't matter. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then people, the, especially the intelligent ones, not the ones who come from the heart, they say, who is this fellow? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Of course he knew because he had pushed the envelope. Instead of just healing the paralytic, he just on purpose stepped on their toes and went further and said, your sins are forgiven. He knew he would produce a scandal. And of course, knew what they were thinking, because normal, he had provoked the crisis, and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Jesus here speaks from a standpoint of Vishuddha Chakra and Vaksidi, which you learn about in our lecture about Satyam in the first level of yoga. Because people say, yeah, I can say whatever. I can say, uh, I don't know, your brains are green. Like people are used to say all sorts of nonsense, which means nothing, which is inexact, inaccurate, and a lie. But those of you who participated in the lecture on Satyam, on the day number eight of the Agama Yoga courses, every month in the cycle, in week two, day number eight, the second day, Tuesday evening lecture, those of you who participated to that lecture, you know that in the tradition people didn't do that. Because they said if you say one thing and it's not the truth or the reality, you destroy the connection between your spirit and reality. And that's why you should only speak the truth and you should, when you don't know, and you should not speak nonsense or jeering all sorts of bullshit which is not okay. And thus, uh, Jesus says, what is easier to say, but he means, I mean, people say, I can say anything. I can say, may the little green man from Mars come and visit the earth. Because people today, people are used to chit-chat and to talk nonsense, which means nothing. But for Jesus, the Word is God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself is called the Word of God. Therefore, the Word, like what is said, means much, 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 much more from the standpoint of Jesus than from the standpoint of the 21st century, who chit-chats and says all sorts of levity, all sorts of superficial nonsense, and then say, ah, ah, I'm just kidding, you know. Jesus is not kidding. He's not the kind who says one thing, and then because what he says happens. So Jesus, when he asks the question, he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? He means by the American expression, put your money where your mouth is. Like when you say it, you mean it. You can put your life at stake for what you say. It's the reality. You know? So when Jesus says, what is it easier to say? It doesn't mean like you're talking rubbish. It means to say, 
with your money where your mouth is, like to say, meaning it, believing it, that it's reality. And Jesus said, you are accusing me that I'm speaking stupidly by saying your sins are forgiven. And that's rubbish. I don't know what I'm talking about. So then he says, what is easier? Because the sins, you know, if I tell to one of you, I have taken away half of your karma to just make life easier, spiritual life easier for you, you are going to say, how can we see that? Only a careful observation of the next five years of your life could show to you discreetly, not very obviously, that somehow your karma has changed starting today. Because your life in the next five years will have characteristics which will be different from what it had in the last five years. Even there, many people would not see it and say, ah, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not. It's not very clear. No? So, Jesus is pointing exactly at this clarity. And he says, you know, it's easy to say, because somebody can say it's cheating, your sins are forgiven. And then the reply is, yeah, yeah, not like, sure. You know, how do I know if you speak the truth? Or maybe in the next five years I'll have a better life. Then I'll say, maybe it's because of that crazy guy did it five years ago. Or something, you know. But it's still not 100% sure. But if I say... Uh, get up, no, get up and walk. Like that would be very clear if it's happening or it's not happening. If your sins have been forgiven, how can you check if I cleanse your causal body of all the negative karma which was there? You can't. If I tell you get up and walk, there is no way we can fake that one. So Jesus simply says, you have little faith, and if I say, as soon as I say something big, you start contesting me and say, maybe this guy is just a very clever cheater. No? So he has challenged them specially. He's very good. He's very good at making this point. He's selling himself very well. No, he, he doesn't want to make a miracle which will go unobserved, which will not have a powerful effect in the souls of people. He has a good marketing and PR understanding, you know. He says, if I'm going to heal this paralytic, I have to do it with a bang. So that everybody will kind of, whoa. So he raises the stakes and says, your sins are forgiven. And people say, maybe it's not true. And then he says, well, look and learn. No? So he says, what's easier to say? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he simply says, what I do is to show you that I am a person who can even forgive sins. Which maybe Moses, 2,000 years ago, he couldn't do. But hey, I'm not Moses. I am God coming. So it's like it's a different story. Right now, you are having a different narrative. So, he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. He is the Son of Man. He uses this appellative. This opens a collateral line of discussion, which I will probably not open now or later in the satsang tonight, because he calls himself the Son of God, and he calls himself the Son of Man. Like a hybrid. 
He says, on one hand, I'm obviously the son of man, because I'm born out of the womb of a woman. I have a mother. She kept me nine months in her belly. She bled and she eliminated placenta when I was born. I was a baby. I sucked milk from the breast of my mother. I grew up. I learned to walk. I learned to speak. So it's like, can you contest that I am a man? He is the son of man, but at the same time, he is the son of God. It's a hybrid. It's a sort of a something which humanity doesn't see very often. A human being who in one way is 100% of a human being, but on the other way, it's not really like a human being like you and I. And thus, this is what the Hindus call an avatar. So, he calls himself here the son of man, know that, and he says, you should know that once you are at my level, even if I was born out of a woman, but I am something special inside, I have the power to go even over karma. Even karma can be surpassed by me. I am something which is above the prophet. The prophets were able to pray so that other people's karma should be cancelled. But I can actually cancel karma. I myself. No, because I am the one to whom the prophets were praying. I am the source. So in this way, he shows his things, and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man is not, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately, that's the power of the word. Like he said it, now it happened. This is a formidable city coming from Vishuddha and in the gate of Jesus as well, Ajna, where he simply twists reality in ways which are completely incomprehensible. Those of you who saw my satsang on space-time and that thing with the sausages and so on, the space-time continuum as it would be called scientifically, uh, you may remember that I talked there about that, how the miracles of Jesus, some of them, they are at the point where reality is simply altered fundamentally. Because what you read here, unless this guy was not paralyzed, but apparently the whole village knew that he was paralyzed, so and Jesus was just visiting that village, so it was very difficult to pretend that this one was some fixture, that it was arranged in some way. And what happens now, it cannot be explained by just some energy, like Jesus activated his Mulakhara chakra, and suddenly the man was on his feet. Takes way, way, way more than that, and I'm going to demonstrate it to you in a second. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. You realize that this man who was lying on a stretcher, he didn't have muscles. So healing his paralysis was not just like, how did the muscles grow so that he can move his body immediately? He didn't have to say, oh, now I can control my limbs, I have to take six months of physiotherapy. He didn't take physiotherapy. Immediately he stood up and went home. 
which means that somehow he got muscles and he got something more important than muscles. He got the balance. I don't know if you know that children spend almost one year learning to walk. Your brain has to work a lot to make you walk on two feet. This man was paralytic. How could he walk? His brain didn't have the sense of balance. And nevertheless, not only he had muscles, he also had a sense of balance. He just stood up like a normal person, like yesterday he had been up. He just stood up and went home, carrying his stretcher or his mat or whatever it was. Insane. This is much bigger as a miracle in the sense of altering reality. Here we are dealing not with some flow of energy in his nadis. Here we are talking about the change of the whole reality. It's like a parallel universe in which this man suddenly has muscles, balance, and all sorts of other abilities which he needed for walking. That's why when you look at a thing like this, it's mind-blowing, the reading. And either you can choose to say, maybe it's a lie and it didn't happen, but if it did happen in the way in which it was described, then it shows you the greatness of it, like what Jesus does out of this world. Oh, the case that uh, a yogi saw that somebody had a slow digestive fire and put their hand on their Manipura and gave them some energy in Manipura and the person felt much better for the next five days. That's a minor, it's a joke compared to what Jesus does in a case like this. And it's because he likes to rise the stakes. He likes to, 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 to raise the, what is at stake. You know, and he basically, they bring him a paralytic, but he says, your sins are forgiven. He didn't need that, he just needed to take away his paralysis. Yeah, but it's much more colorful like this, isn't it? You know? And then he says, so that you know that this thing which I said, it's easy to say, your sins are forgiven. But can any one of you say, stand up and go home and it will happen? So if I do, would you believe me then? Because it was not happening like I'm giving him Thai massage for three weeks and he starts moving his legs gently. No, because I, his nerves are starting to get fixed. It was like this, everything like this in a second. This was a big one, much bigger than it looks because it was just some healing. It's not a healing, it's a completely impossible biological and physiological miracle. It can't happen just because you give somebody a bit of massage or a bit of energy. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. See, this is the thing. The man who was paralyzed, he went home and said, Glory be to God that God today has given me health. It's a wonderful reaction. I wish that I could do such a satsang so you go home and you say, oh my God, glory be to God that I could hear such a satsang tonight, you know. It makes a difference for my life. Like all of us who work in spirituality, I would like you to do a yoga session here in Agama and to go home praising God and say, well, thank God for this yoga session, you know. It was like it saved my life today. Or it's like it's so good that I could be part of this. Everybody wants to, in spirituality, 
wants to produce that light. Don't praise me. Praise God. They praised Henry V that he won the battle with the French in Azincourt. And he said, whoever brags about this battle, I shall have him hanged. First thing which we go, we go to the church in the village, and we thank God, because only God could win such a radical victory like we won today. They, I don't know if you know the story, but watch Henry V, and you will see. They won an impossible lead study in the military academies today, and they still can't understand how did Henry V walk on water. It's like walking on water. He performed a military miracle. And he himself realized it. And he said, no, 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 no. This is not coming from me and you. Only God can produce such a disproportionate thing. So he said, the first thing we go and praise God. The same, the paralyzed man, he went home and praised God. Everybody around who got the lesson who was scolded, they also said, okay, you convinced us, Baba, you know, you are, you know, and they praised God. They said, whoa, thank God that this happened. Thank God that we saw this thing. Thank God that it's possible. Thank God that Jesus is among us. People praised God, and that was making the heart of Jesus happy. He didn't need people to praise him. He needed people to turn their mind to God, to turn their praise to God. You'd say, what does God need it? No, you need it, but you don't know it, and that's why you turn the mind and the soul to God, and who benefits you? Your evolution. You are making steps forward, gigantic steps forward in your personal evolution, because you realize what the name of the game is. They were filled with awe, and we, they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Indeed, that was a good day. This is how the action of Jesus is happening. It's not about healing the paralytic. That's a trigger, but you see how well he uses it to produce a wave of faith in hundreds of people. That's why the healing was done. Not because that paralytic man was important in, in himself. He was a child of God, like how many paralytic people were in Egypt or in Greece at the same time. When, why didn't Jesus go to Egypt or to Greece and heal them all if he was such a great healer? That was not the point. The point of Jesus was, wake up, wake up. I have good tidings for you. Amazing things are going to happen. This was his interest, that people should come up with this and look how well he was doing. I'm not saying that he was a manipulator. I'm saying that he was a natural. He had this feeling, his intuition was perfect in kind of waking people. He was a great understanding of the psychology of people of the psychology of the crowd. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his task booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Of course, Levi, 
who is the old name of Matthew, we know him as Matthew, and the first gospel in the four gospels in the Bible is the gospel of Matthew. This guy was more educated. He could collect money and count them, so he knew mathematics. Probably he knew how to read and write, and therefore he was one of the better educated disciples of Jesus. Many of them were fishermen and copper beaters and so on, and they were illiterate. At least half of the apostles of Jesus started from being illiterate peasants. And not Levi. Levi was a tax collector. He had to count the money and to give the money to the government and to do all that. And therefore Levi was one of the higher educated members of it. And uh, of course uh, there are many discussions about money, the Roman Empire, taxation in this story of Jesus. And some of them will be relevant at some point or another, maybe not tonight. But the point of it all is this. The Jews were, and still are, a very proud people. And uh, they have their nation with strong Manipura, strong Ajna. And because of this, they, of course, they didn't like to be ruled by the Romans. The Romans were, in that day, by far the biggest empire the world had ever known. The Roman Empire had reached from Arabia, which they called Arabia Felix, Happy Arabia, and all the way to Ireland and uh, Great Britain, at least part of it, and Spain, like everything, and of course the north of Africa and all that stuff. So the Roman Empire was a huge thing at the time when there was no radio, television, communication, fast message, you know. The fastest message you could send was on a horse. To send a message on a horse to Rome was a hell of a long way. Also, in a time where decisions would take weeks to be taken or months, the Romans managed to conquer all the known world around them. And they were ruling over a hundred nations around them. And one of them were the Jews. And the Jews didn't like it, you know. Their Manipura, it's like, nah, not me, no, no. And of course they tried their shenanigans, and the Roman Empire simply crushed them. Like they had the military power to crush them. Even after Jesus, they tried again. The famous story of Masada, where they prefer to commit collective suicide, like Japanese seppuku, like Japanese harakiri, rather than being caught by the Romans. It's very seldom that that happened in the Western culture. It's a rare thing, showing this Manipura Ajna of the Jewish people. And of course, eventually they pissed off the Romans so much that the Romans did the unforgivable for Jews gesture that they raised their temple ground, the great temple of Solomon, which was the heart of it, it's raised to the ground. Later, because the temple was raised, when the Muslims take, took over in the Middle East, in the year 800, 900, whatever, they built a temple, a mosque, on top of the foundation of the old temple of Solomon, which today is the famous contentious, the Dome of the Rock this mosque with a golden roof, which is in the old city of Jerusalem, and the Jews constantly say, we have to put it down to rebuild the Temple of Solomon. 
And the Muslims say, sure, over our dead body, are you going to remove the mount, the mountain, the dome, the whatever, the mosque of the dome, or whatever it's called. And this is one of the biggest sources of religious strife between Jews and Muslims in Jerusalem, because the mosque of the dome, whatever it's called, uh, has several names. It stands on the old foundation of the Temple of Solomon. So the Romans simply wiped them out. And until the 20th century, when the Jews started coming back to Israel by the intercession of England and France and some of the Western powers, there was nothing there. They had nothing in the Holy Land. Only after 1947 or 8, they started rebuilding a lot of things. And, but still, of course, not the Temple of Solomon because it's logistically impossible at this point. And therefore, what I'm telling to you here is the Romans were not joking. The Romans were tough Manipura people. The Roman, the Italian soul of today carries Manipura and Anahata a lot. And there is this, when you see movies with the Romans, then from time to time you see people like Gladiator. Even if Gladiator is not a real character, believe me, the Romans had people like that. One, the first which comes to my mind is Muchus Cevola. Muchus, the left-handed man. Why was Muchus called the left-handed? This was a, a warrior of Rome, and Rome was attacked by barbarians. And he went to kill the leader of the barbarians by night, like ninja, sort of assassination, commando mission. And the leader of the barbarians was a very crafty guy, so he couldn't find his tent. And they caught him. Muchus. Muchus got caught. And then he gets brought to the boss of the barbarians, who is a cruel man, a sort of Attila the Hun or something like this. And Attila, whoever the leader was, it was not Attila. He tells him, aha, Muchus, you came to kill me. I'm going to kind of tear you apart, you know. I'm going to give a lesson. At which Muchus Cevola looks down on him, being a prisoner. He says, you are still a barbarian and you don't know what Rome means. I will show you what Rome means. And he said, because you caught me, I'm dishonored and I don't need you to punish me. I can punish myself because I have not succeeded. And Muchus took his right hand, which was his warrior hand, and put it in the fire. There was a flame, well, one of these flames burning, and he just put it into the fire. And he kept his hand into the fire until it was dead. He burned his own hand, looking in the eyes of the leader. And then the barbarian guy, he shed his pants, you know. He looked at Muchus doing this. Nobody could believe that they saw this. Like this guy stood 15 minutes with his hand into the fire. You know? And then the barbarian said, Muchus, I respect you. You can go back to Rome. I have nothing with you. Like, with a man like you, this is Manipura. This is a culture of Manipura, a bit of Anahata in the Italian soul. So they were strong, because not without a strong Manipura that these people conquered the world of their time. It doesn't come like, oh, it was maybe an accident of history. They had a psychology which was strong, and which said, you know, you should take responsibility. If you did something wrong, you should act on it, and all that stuff which comes from it. And uh, the Jews, 
were also with a strong Manipura, but they didn't have the military power of the Roman Empire. And of course, they were very rebellious. They were all the time trying to break the Roman rule. And the Romans could not allow that to happen. When you are like the Roman Empire, you can't lose control over your subjects. So the Romans squashed them several times. And the Romans were therefore very Manipuristic. So in this Manipuristic culture, money, which is among others on Manipura, its power on Manipura, to have money, financial power, the Jews were paying their money to the emperor, to the Roman Empire, and they hated it. Not to mention that you all know anecdotally that the Jews have a reputation, that they are very stingy with the money and they are very interested in the money and all that. It's a cultural obsession, you know? And the Jews who were so very much focused on their money had their money sucked by the Roman Empire. So they hated paying taxes to the Romans because it was a, it was a symbol of their slavery. It was the most visible symbol of their slavery that they had to bleed money to the Romans and the money was going to Rome. No? And they couldn't have had the money without some collaborators. It's impossible to collect the taxes if you don't speak the language and if you are not part of that community. So there were, in the Israeli culture, there were turncoats, traders, collaborators, people who said, okay, I will gather the taxes for you, Romans. <coughs> and these people were like privileged. They were rich, they probably had good houses, partying, they got a part of the money, and so on. And the Jews hated their guts. But they couldn't do anything against them because to rise a hand against the tax collector meant to rise your hand against the Roman Empire. And people had to tolerate them, but they hated them. This was Matthew. Matthew was one of the most hated people in his community. <coughs> Matthew was a turncoat, a traitor, a collaborator, a person who, for having a good life himself, he was fucking all the Jewish village, all his community, because he simply said, you know, eventually one has to live. I have to survive, and, and you know, I will just gather taxes for the Romans. So he was rich, he was privileged, and they hated his God. And definitely the religious people were putting him down, like, you are a sinner, you betray the holy Israel. God will make you burn in hell forever and ever for this. You are God, like religiously, spiritually, people will think he is the last man. Exactly as some of the people in Christianity were coming from prostitution, you know. And people thought, ah, you are, you know, you are scum of the earth. And some of these prostitutes became enlightened beings, while the other people who were just talking nonsense, they stayed locked in their ignorance. So this is what's happening here. He simply came to the tax collector of the village and he knew about paralytic man and leper, like the rumor. The reputation of Jesus was strong, but this guy did not dare to come and be mixed with the others because he was alone. But Jesus could see that this man, precisely because he was alone, he was in the position of the prodigal son. 
he regretted a lot. There was part of him which said, I, I wish I could wipe out the past and be again with my brothers and sisters. There was in him this thing. And Jesus, again, with a brilliant spiritual intuition, he speculates this. He says, this is a man who is ready to come back home. It doesn't matter the story that he is with the Romans. or That's not the point. The point is that he feels guilty. He feels unworthy. He has a low self-esteem. He feels condemned. He feels doomed. And Jesus makes him apostle directly. He goes in the top. So Jesus just goes to him and is like Manipura. I know this guy, everybody in the village cursed him, hated him. And he was doing it for the last 10 years. So there is a book which has appeared a couple of years ago, which has a wonderful title. It's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. No, like sometimes you simply have to not give a fuck. No, like if I would care about the dirty people who speak garbage about Agama and me, I should go suicide, although I'm not guilty. You know? So I cultivate the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I don't give a fuck because I know they are idiots. No? So in this way, it's the same with Matthew. Matthew was a Levi called here. He was cultivating the art of not giving a fuck, which means he had a pretty good money for us. He was handling money, he had power, financial power in that village, you know, and so on. And then Jesus approaches him directly. Agnotspadistanistic storytelling, and you know, this is a Manipura guy, and Jesus goes directly to him, and he says, follow me. Probably like, follow you, I, who am the tax collector. Guess what happened? And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Like Levi said, I'm not a tax collector anymore. Because Jesus did me the honor to pull me out of the garbage. Pull me out of the hell in which I live. Wow. So, again, here you have this revolution of the heart. We have the same in Adam. We have people who come, they come from the corporate world, they come from something, suddenly they sell their ticket, they sell this, and they stay here for six years. It's exactly the same turn into the heart. That sometimes people realize my life was going in a totally wrong direction. What is the usefulness of this? You know, I'm working to have a PhD in literature. And then I read a verse from Lalishvari or Bhata Narayana who says, Venerate Shiva, Venerate Shiva, Venerate Shiva, O you of little knowledge. The rules of grammar will have no importance in the hour of your death. Venerate Shiva. You know, like some people bother about grammar. Are you really getting anywhere with grammar? Or getting a PhD in literature? It's just an illusion. It's just Maya. You are a moth blinded by the fire in the lamp. You are getting nowhere. When you die, you will not be able to go to your guardian angel and say, but I had a PhD in literature. Because your guardian angel will say, print it on some soft paper and give it to me so I can wipe my ass with it. It's nothing. What's the worth of it that you had a PhD in literature? For when you go to the act of dying, to the moment of 
merging with the infinite. It's nothing. And people don't do the things which matter, and they waste time with things which don't matter. And that's why some people, when they have this moment in the heart, sometimes they explode, you know, and they simply say, no, no. I, I was having a lot of crazy dreams. I don't know how I hypnotized myself into this, but I know, now, I, now I realize what matters. There are moments of awakening in our own soul. The same happened to Levi in that moment. He was doing his taxes, and he knew that there was a big religious man, but he didn't dare to go near him. Like Peter, who said, Lord, don't come near me, go away, I'm a sinful man. Peter was a normal fisherman. This guy, Levi, was the tax collector. He was like feeling ten times more guilty and dirty than Peter. And suddenly Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. It's like, whoa, you know, it's like, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, you know, it's like, who will give me this chance second time? Nobody, you know, so it's like he just left everything and went. This is how he became Matthew. No, this is how we have an apostle and a gospel writer called Matthew. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus and his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Again, it implies other people who were not clean. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like it means whole prostitutes, whatever, was there, you know? Like Jesus is completely not afraid to mix with the most controversial people of the society. And he's doing a great work. He gathers prostitutes, he gathers tax collectors, he gathers all sorts of dubious characters who remain famous in history for their spirituality. 2,000 years later, we know approximately who is Matthew, you know? Like, there's a man who wrote the Gospel, and who is wrote Matthew, you know? So, of course, the people that are religious fanatics, they don't see it. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is with them, alive, taking decisions, acting. History, is written in front of their eyes. Those people saw big-time history, spiritual history, being written right there in front of them. What Jesus did in that evening stayed in history. We talk about it 2,000 years later. There were people who saw it, and what did they do? And remember, they had seen Jesus raising a paralyzed man from his bed, and maybe a leper the day before, like, you know, it was not like Jesus was a totally unknown person. He had a reputation. And still these people are complaining. Now, after they saw the thing, you'd say, now these people would say, hallelujah, you know, we've seen. No, no. Their skepticism and the demons in their head continue. No, it's, no. it's continuing there. So why do you eat? and drink with tax collectors and sinners, you know, that was their problem. That some religious norms, some of these kosher rules that the Jews were crazy about, how to stay kadosh, how to stay holy, they were not respected. 
they couldn't say like this guy definitely doesn't need to respect the rules because this guy is obviously above all the rules. He just took a fucking paralyzed man on a stretcher and made him go home with his stretcher. And it's like, what rules apply to this guy? This guy can do whatever he wants. He can go to hell and dance in hell if he wants, you know. Now nothing can touch him. No, the religious fanaticism is stronger than that. Buddha has tried to cancel the caste system in India. Gandhi, the tantrics, the whole history, there are 3,000 years of fighting against the caste system. If you tomorrow take the Hindustan Times, go to the matrimonial page, it's all organized on caste. People are still marrying according to their fucking caste in India. You can't. Religious people are like this because they don't live it. They are not alive. For them, the religion is just some dead letters in a book. It has to be alive. It has to be the real thing. The, not only the Jews. The Islamic religion is very strong about this Manipura rules and so on. And some people who want to make Islam more alive, they call themselves Sufis. And while the Sufis are sometimes amazing, like Rumi, and the great spiritualist, in many Islamic countries, Sufism is forbidden by punishment on death, like in Iran or something else, because it's too liberal. We prefer to believe in the Quran by the letter. But if Jesus would be here, he would not act according to the Quran 100%. He would say, I am above the Quran, and some of the rules I can bend them because. It's a new time. History is being written right now while I'm with you. And thus, I'm telling you all these things to understand the tension which existed there and what was at stake. And they asked, why do you stay with you? you know, normally if the Guru, Jesus in this case, would have been a bit more impatient, he would have said, you are idiots and you don't understand. That. That's it. Kiss my ass. I stay with whoever I want, whenever I want, you know. You don't understand why I stay with Levi, but too bad, you know. But Jesus patiently, in a divine way, because he was there to help them, to wake them up, he is trying to explain to them, and Jesus is giving always this simple Zen-like answers, you know, like, that is common sense. Don't ask me to give you some convoluted excuse. Things... God's things are simple and obvious sometimes. No? Jesus tells them very clearly. It is, Jesus, I don't say, why do you stay with Levi and the like? And Jesus told them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call God the righteous, but the sinners. To call them to repentance. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it a logical thing? Like Jesus tells them, if you guys... Uh, the Pharisees and which are religious students, theologians, you know, if you guys think that you are so holy and that you understand the rules of Moses and that you understand the path of God, good for you. He tells them later, you are not. I believe that you are not, actually. I believe that you are deluded, but not here. In this sentence, he doesn't. He simply says, if you guys think that you love God, and you are on the path to God, you have all my respect. I take off my head in front of you. I have come to talk to the sinners. 
because they have a problem. If you guys think that you are on the path of God, I can tell you the famous story, you know, see you in paradise, see you in Eden. And if, when I will be in paradise, you will not be there, it means you ate shit. It means you thought you are on. But I'm not going to contradict you. The tree is known by its fruits. If you think that Agama is not good for you, and you want to follow some guru who will take you to God, my answer can also be, see you in Eden. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm simply saying, see you in paradise. In about a hundred years, everybody in this room will be dead. And your soul will be in the astral world. See you in a good place in the astral world. And if you will not be there, maybe I will not be there. Maybe I'm severely deluded. And I'm going in a dark place and gnashing my teeth. But if I'm going in the right place, if I'm right, and you are not there, it can also mean that you have been deluded and you thought something which is not going to work. So Jesus has the courage which all the grand masters of spirituality will have, saying, hey, my path is not the only path. You don't like to follow my path, follow some other path, and see you in paradise. Or not. So I'm, I put the money on the table, you know? Like I can put the money where my mouth is. I'm simply saying, I believe I have made it, or I believe I will make it. Do you have the same certainty that you are going to make it? If yes, we have a wonderful spiritual encounter. I see you today, I don't see you again for a hundred years, and one day you are going to enter in my bungalow in Shambhala and saying, hi, I also made it here to here. I'm glad to see you again. And if you don't, and if it will take you 25,000 years before you can make it to that place, then it's tough luck. You know, it's like, what can I say? I told you so. I warned you. That doesn't make me feel better or warmer than I. Jesus simply says, I speak my truth, I do my thing, and if you guys think that you are the healthy ones, then you don't need a doctor. Good for you. Go follow the advice of Moses, do your things, and see you in paradise. It means you will make it. He knows they will not. Because people in their hearts, they know. Your subconscious mind knows the answer. In the night you go in the astral body, and you dream, and you have intuition, and you, have, and you know. Somewhere deep in you, you know. So when Jesus is challenging you like this, it's like he throws a gauntlet, you know? He simply throws the glove and says, pick up the glove if you're there. You know, it's like, see you in Shambhala in a hundred years. No? It's as simple as that. The question is, not many people have the confidence to say that. Because first, you actually have to make it. First, you actually have to know it. And nobody plays with the fate of the soul. Jesus, who is more than a human being that has reached enlightenment, Jesus who is Jesus, he simply says, why do you stay with the miserable? He says, because the miserable people need me. 
And the other people, maybe they don't need me. Maybe you guys don't need me. It's fine by me. But don't ask me why I stay with the people that have a problem. I stay because apparently they need me. And I'm here for those who need me. It's as simple as that. But these the people who are sinners, they are more humble because they know in the Psalm number 50, if I remember, David, one of the Jewish kings who became an enlightened being, who is a prophet as well, King David, in the Psalm number 50 or 49 or one of those, he says, my sin is always in front of my eyes. Oh God, cleanse me, and so on, you know? Like, he always, always lives with his sin, he feels he is a sinner. And because he feels he is a sinner, he asks to be forgiven, he asks to be blessed, and he is humble. He can be humble. But these people who felt they were righteous, like, we know the rules, and the rules are not... This is arrogance. There's a lot of arrogance into this. So many of these theological people, they are full of arrogance. And Jesus is simply answering in a very modest way. He simply said, I'm sitting with the sick people because they need the doctor. If you don't like it, don't sit with me. You know, if you feel you are righteous. But he knows they are also sick. They are more sick than the tax collectors and the prostitutes because they have a bigger problem. Arrogance. They are arrogant like the devil. They are full of vanity and hollow pride. And that's much worse than somebody who did some prostitution, you know? Prostitution is nothing. Okay, you sold your body for some money or for something like this. But being arrogant and full of vanity, your soul is much more lost than the soul of a sinner. A sinner will say, I sin, I sin, I sin, I can't take it anymore, I don't sin anymore, I stop. But an arrogant person who thinks, I'm right, I'm right, I'm surely right, that person continues doing errors because they can't even conceive for a second that they are walking in the wrong direction. So there is a beauty here about this. And then I will open this subject. We're going to a subject which is big and beautiful because I would like to stop at 10.30 to not keep you too late in the night. Uh, usually my program is uh, lecturing for maximum two hours uh, on this. So I continue with the story. A big lesson has been taken there, psychologically as well. Jesus being questioned about fasting. Uh, not fasting how to fast, but something else. Then these uh, arrogant theological people, then they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. They were complete jerks, by the way, and Jesus will uh, told them and so on. Because the people said, now they are using John, John the Baptist, against Jesus. Like, you are such a libertine. At least John was living in the desert, and there were a few people who were his disciples, and he made them fast and do a lot of tapas, what we call in yoga tapas, tapasya and so on. But actually, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He was his cousin. He was his second degree cousin. And 
like uh, his mother, mother of John was the primary cousin of the mother of Jesus. So their mothers were cousins, so Jesus and John were born three months away from, or six months away from each other, and they were cousins, second degree cousins. And uh, John, actually when John started telling the truth, he was killed by the local king, he was assassinated. And all these Pharisees and uh, assholes, who now pretended they were righteous, they did not defend John. Because they were cowards, and they said, well, you cannot fight with the king, if the king, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were just cowards. <coughs> that was fine. But now when it became uh, nice, now they were using John. Suddenly John was a good example. But they never defended John. Remember, these people were actually extraordinary cowards and extraordinary two-faced. Suddenly you would say that, well, they admired John. They did not. If they would have admired John, they would have tried to defend him. But they did not. So now they say, uh, John's disciples, they were fasting and praying, and so do some Pharisee sect, but your people go on drinking like it's true. That was one thing. Jesus was doing this huge advancement in personal evolution. Try to think. Some people were in that village and they saw a leper, a paralytic man, others coming to life. Israel is a relatively small piece of land. And Jesus in three years, probably he toured every village in that country at least three times over. Population was not very big, so they were like one village every five or ten kilometers, no? And so on, so there were not so many. In a country of 60 kilometers, you can have only 12 villages in a row, no? Not so many. So people knew Jesus already pretty well. And he comes in a village, and people say, this is the guy who last year healed a leper. Like you know him that he is some sort of divine madman and healer, and whatever, what a miracle worker, and so on. But try to think about these apostles. The people who followed him, they saw these things every day, not once a year. You saw two miracles this year, you saw two miracles next year, and then you saw two miracles next year, and then Jesus was assassinated, was crucified. You saw six miracles. But the apostles probably saw six miracles per day. So because of this, their faith, because every time when they saw a miracle, they got 1% more faith, as many doubts as they could have, Jesus was stepping over their doubts, stepping over their doubts, stepping over their... These people were like forced in an evolution which was incredibly strong. Imagine the speed of evolution of the apostles where when they were in the presence of God in a human body every day. Every day. And therefore, they didn't do much spiritual practice. Like for these people, being with Jesus was stronger than 10 years of yoga. Because it's like they were in the flood of grace all day long. So that's why it's known that neither the mother of Jesus, nor the apostles, they are very big spiritually quoted today, at least in Christianity, but they are not known to have done too much spiritual practice. So the Pharisees and this, they were jealous. They said, we fast and we pray and we do things, 
and your guys just walk with you and they eat and drink all day long and they are supposed to be the salt of the earth and we are the sinners. We are the ones who don't get the point. So they try to kind of attack Jesus in like it can't be. This spiritual community of yours is not even spiritual. At least when they were with John, they were fasting, they were praying, they did tapas every day. But your people don't even do tapas. And Jesus answered again brilliantly. Spiritual genius. Showing indeed that these people saw only narrow-minded visions. Jesus answered, he said, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He alludes to a wedding. There is a wedding. And then the bridegroom is dressed in white or in black or whatever. He's dressed with feathers on his head. It's his day. It's the day when he gets married. And everybody salutes the bridegroom and says, Walter, congratulations. We are happy to be with you. This is a day which you will never forget. This is, you know, it's his day. It's a day which is unique in his life. And it's a party. And he says, right now that I am here on earth for just three years, it was 33 years, but the first 30 were spent on something else. But now that I am in this known part for three years and a half, these three years and a half are a party. People don't even need to do yoga or prayer around me because they see God all day long. They actually look at me and they see God. And if they ask me, Jesus, can you do this? What about? I'm answering to them and God is not talking to them, you know? It's like the greatest privilege. And so he compared his thing with a wedding. So like we are at a party. It's a wedding party. And he is the bridegroom. He is the man with the feathers, you know? And he says, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast? Well, he's like, there should be no party. Now we have to think about God. But see, I am God. You are with God. What is there to think about? Right now you are in the light. Right now you are in the grace. Right now you are this close to Samadhi. Right now it's like, there's nothing to be done. Just open your eyes. Be. These people could have tried to copy Jesus. I don't know how smart they were because they became enlightened only 50 days after the Jesus was crucified. So at the time when they were with Jesus, none of them pretended that they had reached spiritual maturity. And therefore, they probably were sometimes confused. I'm pretty much sure that the apostles didn't really understand what was happening to them. Like they felt it was a roller coaster. They felt it was something great, but it was like, you know, it's like only 50 days after Jesus passed away, then they realized and they said, whoa, you know, it's like this was happening to us. You know? Then they woke up and they realized what the rest of their lives was going to be like. So he said, can you feel like, why fast? You fast when you don't have God. When you have God, there's no reason to fast. It's just celebrate, 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 celebrate. No. And thus, he says, but the time will come, he predicts already, he knew the sad story, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He was not going to be with them. 
was too much of a grace for three years and a half. In those days, they will fast. That's why the Christian community, after Jesus was crucified, until today, those who are truly practicing at this, they do tapas, they do austerity. The real committed Christian practitioners, they fast, they pray, they do moral and ethical restraint, they practice a lot of moral and ethical restraint every day. Why? Because the bridegroom is not with them anymore. We know about Jesus, but we didn't have the chance to touch him and to see him healing the blind and walking on water. Therefore, we are like, uh, yeah, sure, and we wish we could touch you, Jesus. We wish we could be with you. But the wedding party is over for now. There will be a second coming, allegedly. We don't know when or how. So until that happy day will come, we are just waiting here and longing for God. And therefore, we fast, we make spiritual effort. In yoga, when people want to make spiritual efforts in yoga, not necessarily for Jesus, because not everybody is a Christian, but people do hatha yoga, they do meditation, they do fasting, they do kriyas, they do purification, they do, they do their spiritual work. Gurdjieff in the 20th century has called it the work, the work. Spiritual practice is called in code by Gurdjieff the work. Because, and in alchemy, it's called magnus opus in Latin. The great work, magnus opus. Because it's a work. You are working to achieve, I was about to find Buddha there, because I got, you work to achieve Buddhahood. You work to achieve enlightenment. So it's the work. It's the great work. It's a project. It's like you graduate a university. And therefore, that is the work. And you know, people do the work. But in this special period, there was something amazing. People today can get inspired by Ramakrishna. People can read a book of Swami Shivananda and get inspired. People can be inspired by Mahananda Mai. But it was one thing to actually see them physically, talk to them, be in their presence. It's a one thing when the Guru is alive, and it's another thing when there is just a book left behind. The book can inspire you, but it's not the same thing like to be like Matthew, like Levi. You were in the present, God came and said, follow me. That's a special grace. So Jesus simply says, you don't realize, but that's why he's bragging that he's the most important person in the world. Now, he doesn't want to say, that's why he uses a parable. And he says, you know, when people are with the bridegroom, it's not time for austerity. It's time to enjoy it because it's happening right now. He told them, a parable, and I'm not going to go there. But Jesus, I'll stop here in the middle of this, at the paragraph number 35, I finished 35. He says, you don't fast with the bridegroom, but the time will come. He knows that that's a short-lived thing. When the bridegroom will be taken from that, 
in those days they will fast. So the saying is valid in every religion. The people who walked together with Buddha, Yahutama Buddha, they saw something which many people would have liked to see. They were privileged. Like the Chinese saying, may you live in interesting times. It was surely interesting to be contemporary with Buddha. It was surely con interesting to be contemporary to Ramakrishna, or to Rumi, or to the Prophet Muhammad, or obviously to Jesus. And therefore, uh, in all the religions, people are practicing austerities because you don't have the living example always with you to inspire you. I remember I've seen images from Osho Rajneesh, from Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's community. He was driving his Rolls Royces and making people dance and uh, sing and so on. It's the same. One of his mantras was celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. But he told them to celebrate because I'm here. When I will not be here, there will be another lesson. Another thing will happen. So sometimes when such exceptional persons are being born and they bear witness, then the faith is more easy to get. Then the aspiration, the practice is more easy to do. And when not, then you are reduced to tapasya. Then you have to do your tapasya because you know, it's all your personal effort. And we get some inspiration by reading the stories about Jesus or about Ramakrishna or about this, but it's not the same thing as touching them physically, as being there in their presence physically. So that was tonight's excursion through some of the actions, sayings, messages included by Jesus. And again, I'm trying to interpret all these things mostly from the standpoint of chakras, energy, aspiration, evolution of the soul, and all the factors which concern us in yoga, so that you can see that the message is universal. What Jesus does and says corresponds to the universal spirituality, and uh, he just explains it in a way which is specific to his community, to the culture in which he was born and where he acted. With this, let us conclude for tonight. Remember those of you who don't know that satsangs are not with questions and answers, and therefore anybody who wishes to address questions because you got provoked on something especially, on Tuesdays we have Q&A, and that's when people ask me questions and so you write down and then you can come to the Q&A. Otherwise in satsang I speak, we record it, it's for you and for the pupils who are not here and the questions can come only later at some other occasion. Again, thank you all for joining and see you in the next event here in Adam.